0: And welcome everyone back to dissecting popular IT nerds. I'm one of the hosts. Uh, Phil Howard happened to be the founder, also. But today, um, we are speaking with Neil Nicolaison. Am I getting this? Nicolaison. Right? Nicolaison. Okay, you know, I quite often make a fool of myself, but that's how we. Well, get to be it. honest
1: with it, with a name like Nicolaison, I've heard every variant, so I don't really pay that much attention.
0: <laughs> so. Uh, uh, before we started two seconds ago you said you've you've winged everything about it, it, it winged everything in life so um I th- I think I probably can relate with that to a certain degree um you know I I have eight kids I didn't think that would ever happen either, so I've been winging that as well. And you know, that's how fathering goes. Yeah.
1: What are you? You know, eight kids. You don't look that beat up at this point in your life. It must <laughs> well, be because I learned good
0: to digulate. I I, d- I can't even speak. I've learned to delegate. Digulate is a new word, but yes. Yeah. When you get to a certain number, you must delegate. And uh, well, well digulate is
1: what you do when you got a big hole to dig and you delegate it to your kids.
0: <laughs> I love it. Uh, so you came, you came highly recommended, and um, and like I, I told you,
1: you you need you you need to hang out with better people.
0: <laughs> I already know, and I can already understand why. So um, <laughs> this show, believe it or not, we like to talk about um um IT leadership. If that's that has, I guess, recently become a thing, which sounds like it's something that you might do or take part in from time to time. And, um, you know, there's, you know, I guess really what is it leadership? You put it as, you know, enable strategy through technology innovation. Okay. We got that deliver operational excellence. Okay. I think some, some tech guys can do that. But one thing that's been interesting that I like that I'd love to talk about for a few minutes is great workplace culture. And at what, at what point do you, um, How does a good IT leadership take part in that? Because I can't tell you how many IT leaders that call me and they're like, Phil, I'm I'm just, I'm over here now. It's so much better. It was just, you know, so toxic. It was horrible over where I was. So it made me think like, well, then you weren't really taking part in that leadership or affecting the leadership. And sometimes you might not be able to. Um, And it probably depends on the type of organization. I mean, you're at a fairly large university, I'm assuming. And so you have the um, benefit of, it's just a different atmosphere, I would imagine, when you're at a university than when you're at a, I don't know, large manufacturer where it's all about the bottom line. Not to say that it's not about the bottom line in a university and that the landscape of, you know, education hasn't changed over the last three years, which is a whole nother topic in itself. But it is um, maybe um, tell us a little bit about where you got started, what your first computer sure. was and how you learned uh, to care about culture. Sure.
1: So I'll I'll give you the quick and dirty, even though it's rarely quick, but it's certainly dirty. So 800 years ago, I got a degree in (laughs) physics, of all things. Uh, I wanted to be a nuclear physicist. And so uh, then I realized that uh, while I may like modern physics, advanced physics, Oppenheimer was fascinating to me just because it's, you know, I lived my life in Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Mm. I, I wasn't it yeah. wasn't what appealed to me.
0: That's super nerdy. Could you explain that <laughs> yes. real quick? To can you even explain that real quick? No, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's sure. Beautiful. Let's
1: let's let's talk about the duality of particles and how they're both particles and waves. And because they're particles inside of waves or waves that are inside of particles, uh-huh. there's never you can you can never <laughs> exactly position velocity if you can. Exactly pinpoint velocity, velocity, you can't pinpoint position and vice versa. That's Heisenberg uncertainty, which means everything is uncertain. Mm, you can I put know. it within a, a box of certainty, but inside that box, everything is uncertain, which sort of applies to life in I as an IT leader because whatever we're doing today is going to change.
0: How about our model fact, of the universe? Just to, since we have a part of this show that's called, there's a part of this show that I like to take a break and we'll just take that break right now okay. at the beginning of the show. I guess it's usually meant to cut up at the beginning of the show, but it's so appropriate right now, Um, which is called um, do you believe in or, and, or take part in any of the uh, modern day conspiracy theories? But um, I guess w- what, what made me think of it was model of the universe and uh, do we have it right? Or is it just a theory?
1: You know, it, it's interesting because, if you if you go back to the particle theory of life, and then the wave theory of life, and they seem to be, well, it's either a wave or a particle, and then Einstein came along and said it's both. And so maybe our construct of our reality is based on what we experience. We experience particles, we experience waves, and then we project that model onto everything we experience. And so it's just hard for us to grasp that maybe there's a third alternative that is not what our perceptions tell us is real. And so I, I just, I'm just this is really nerding out on the physics stuff, but it's, it's instructive to, even as I think both forward and backward from this point in time, what I think is going to happen in the future is based on what happened in the past, but maybe not. So, how can I be prepared? How can I be prepared for something different? Because every Thought process we have every pattern we have until you come to these people who are just wildly innovative because they came up with the third way of thinking or the second way of thinking or the fourth way the fifty and just say no this these constraints that I put on myself what if they're not true what would I do if these constraints are a construct and not constraints and and I think so in in the sciences we tend to believe in terms of the 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 constraints we've invented if you think about what you know einstein with the photoelectric effect where he said light is not a particle it's not a wave it's light and it blew people's minds because they had a hard time grasping that it couldn't be it was an either or well maybe it's an either and so how many times in our life do we do we confront these things do we question really what we believe are constraints And I think sometimes we don't question those constraints enough. And instead of treating them, we treat them as constraints when they're really constructs that we, humankind, or me personally have invented. And I think it's true even about myself as we get into leadership. Talk about how my approach to leadership has changed because my constructs, what I thought the constraints of my role as a leader turned out to be self-imposed constructs that I could change, that I could blow through. And when I changed those and changed my thinking patterns, my success was significantly better my outcomes were significantly better but it really required me what were some of those
0: examples what was an example of one of those constructs that you blew away
1: so we, we you know we haven't gotten much into my history i i started my career from physics i got more into project management in engineering management i've got a master's degree in mechanical engineering from a very you know well respected well-known university um turned out i was a terrible engineer but, but i i was a good systems engineer why I do so many engineers want to go
0: into project management
1: because i in my case it was because i was a lousy engineer and it seemed like <laughs> the best, next best option but i i got it turned out i had an aptitude for process improvement so I became a lean manufacturing person, and so again, I, you know, fairly early in my career, I did a career diversion, and I became a VP of operations for large, relatively large organization, managing supply chains, manufacturing, distribution, all that stuff.
0: What do we call it um, again? Lean, lean um, process.
1: Yeah, lean, lean. I was, I was a process improvement person. I used okay. lean principles, but I was really good at. Let's look at the process. Let's identify what the root cause of the issues are. Let's solve the root cause. Let's make the process better. Mm. But a decent portion of my time every day was complaining about how bad the organization's IT was. And so one day, just to shut me up about complaining, the CEO, out of spite, mind you, said, okay, smart guy, if you th- if you think IT is so bad, let's see what happens when you run it. Mm-hmm. So I went mm-hmm. from... IT critic to CIO in a five minute conversation. And then since then, <laughs> this is great. I've done, I've done a series of IT transformations of some degree, magnitude, different organizations. So I've been at my at Utah State University for a year. Uh-huh. Prior to that, I'd done these eight fairly interesting transformations. Now, let's get to And now let me try and finally answer your question.
0: But well, what's cool, though, uh, is that what's cool, though, is that were you able to say, see, I couldn't do it better after all of that? Or were you really like, no. Yeah, but
1: you know, I tell people that the <laughs> brilliant thing about my career is if you follow a substandard IT leader, you actually don't have to be that good. You just have to be better. Mm-hmm. So yeah. if you if you set your career thresholds and hurdles low enough, you always look good. Mm-hmm. So you've got to be selective when you take on a transformation because you got to take over for somebody who's a total abject failure, because then I can be a marginal failure Excellent. still by comparison yeah. look good.
0: Low hanging fruit. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I've always told people, like, why'd you pick that job? Yeah. I mean, it's like, like when you go pick a job and where you go work, go pick somewhere where you can be successful. <laughs> like, Fair don't way. just take a job. Like, come on. Yeah.
1: I, I've had, I've learned so much because you can imagine coming from up to that point in my career, a career where I had not, I tell people, you know, yes, I'd written a line of code, but it was a long time before. Uh And so suddenly now I'm yeah. leading this enterprise IT organization that had some challenges and the organization had some challenges with how it's IT operated. And even uh, I've found in doing these IT turnarounds and transformations that IT, the organization's perception is that IT is broken. But the real problem is IT is just a manifestation of how broken the organization is. And so you've got to, you've got to change the way the organization operates as well. And that's sort of my my leadership evolution has been, I, I would call it this: tyrannical micromanagement.
0: Mm, love it
1: to a focus on, and this leads into the culture that accompanies both a focus on trust, ownership, and influence,
0: and and then uh, somewhere in between was a meritocracy, probably somewhere in there. Yeah, because <laughs> I, you know,
1: I, I, I you know, I, I and it was part of was driven by this construct I would created for myself or the constraint, which is it's broken. The people are incompetent and ineffective how can I possibly turn this IT organization around? Mm. I must browbeat these IT people into doing things the quote unquote, right way. Mm. And Mm. I was just a tyrannical micromanager. And I had a very, I, the turning point in my leadership life was, so the organization where I'm suddenly now the CIO, all their systems were sort of homegrown or highly customized. And that was one of the problems I had as the VP of operations. As we changed our processes, we improved our processes. I'd always bump up against the constraints of our, well, our systems can't support that. well, then maybe we should throw our system si-
0: siloed old technology of some. Yeah, sort. it's
1: just, you know, and, you we know, use Lotus
0: you know, notes. Okay, we use. Lotus. Yeah, exactly. Notes. Yeah. It's, something know, like right. that.
1: <laughs> and so and so I'm dealing with these. And so one of my first projects was I convinced the board of directors, I convinced the company to give me a boatload of money and a boatload of people. Mm-hmm. and let's let's replace all of our current systems with a lovely integrated ERP you know it's it's going to solve all our problems the ERP <laughs> thing is going to solve all our
0: problems oh no
1: and i learned a bunch of lessons on that the first <laughs> one is I tell people, I don't do system replications. I do system replacements because we spent a whole bunch of that money they gave me and a whole bunch of the effort of the people they gave me to make the new system just look like just the old system that we wanted to replace. I'm like, I don't do replications. If you want to replicate your system, go somewhere else. I don't do replications.
0: But point.
1: so I had, I was able to pick from across the company because I already been there as the VP of operations for a number of years. I knew how I wanted on this business transformation project. We're going to clean up all the badness, all the bad process we're going to fix. We're going to do this. this is going to be an elegant implementation of an ERP system. And it mattered so much to me personally, because I felt the weight of the massive amount of money the company had trusted me with to pull this off that for it was a 14 month project. We did it the old way, the old waterfall way, gather binders and binders of requirements, do months and months of configuration and development then test and then turn it on. And everybody would be so thrilled with it. And we did that. And then we turned it on. People said, that's not what I want. So that was my first lesson, waterfall doesn't work. So we we could come back to that or not. But this mattered to me so much that these 10 people that I trusted so much that I handpicked them to be the leadership team of this effort. I just, I was just a terrible micromanager. I in effect said, turn your brain off and do whatever I tell you to do. And I actually thought it was the right way to do things. This is, I guess it was based on arrogance. I didn't think I was arrogant, but apparently I was. Our only chance for being successful is to do things my way. I know what to do. I know how to do it. Just don't think, don't talk, just act. And we delivered that project on time, on budget, on scopes debatable. Anyway, that's a separate topic about whether waterfall or agile is better. And I thought... In the early days of ERP, nobody delivered on time on budget. So I felt like this was my crowning achievement as a professional. And once we declared victory, had the celebration party, then as my before my project team disbanded, before these 10 people went back to where they came from in the organization, they individually, which makes me wonder, I don't think it was a coordinated effort, which kind of hurt too. It would have been better if it had been coordinated. They individually came to me and said, Neil, thanks for the experience, but I never want to work with you again. And I was shocked. I was stunned. I was like, no, you should be naming your children after me because I made this happen. And, but then I start thinking, I picked these people because they're so good and so smart and so talented. Mm-hmm. Why would they say that if they're smart, good, and talented? Maybe it's true. Mm, Maybe hurts. I need to change the way I do things.
0: And then you go home and cry for five days.
1: I didn't, but I started analyzing myself and thinking, (laughs) i got to change. And I started questioning myself. And so really what that triggered was ever since then, years of what I call a healthy dissatisfaction. Now that to me, a healthy dissatisfaction is better than an unhealthy dissatisfaction. Unhealthy dissatisfaction leads to, I'm a terrible human being. I'm a terrible leader, but the healthy dissatisfaction was, I can do better.
0: I'm outstanding. And I but want to. I'm outstanding. Go ahead. But improved, you, As Zig Ziglar used to say, I don't even know how I'm, if I'm outstanding, outstanding, but improving. I'm I may
1: suck, but I, I can get mean, better.
0: <laughs> I can suck less. I can suck less.
1: And so <laughs> I, I started actually, and because I felt like I may have not been, I may have lacked the self awareness. Certainly with mm-hmm. those ten people, I did. So I started creating channels of feedback for myself. Maybe I'm, maybe I lack self-awareness. Maybe that's just something I don't have. So maybe I'm being a tyrannical macro manager, but don't realize it. Maybe I'm treating people poorly. Maybe I'm not collaborating like I should. Maybe I'm not giving people opportunities that I should. How can I create some feedback channels? And that led me to more towards, okay, what is the culture where people feel safe in telling me, Neil, you're an idiot? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I never felt like I took things personally, but I felt like maybe I'd created a culture where people thought I would. So they wouldn't talk to me and tell me what they really felt.
0: Or they might think there's like a repercussion, repercussion, exactly. or you're going to view them a certain way, or then things might change or they might, it might jeopardize their position or blah, blah, blah.
1: Yeah. And so I, st- that started sort of by a, a, a my, Leadership self-discovery, which continues, Hmm. but this focus on culture, what, and I started thinking about, and I'd actually, after my experience implementing this ERP and replicating the legacy system rather than replacing it part of my analysis self analysis is also how did I let that happen and how do I stop that from happening in the future so I developed a couple of models that I've used ever since one called is called purpose alignment so I became the world's only practitioner of purpose alignment because I was the only person who ever used it the purpose alignment looks at every activity in the organization in two dimensions to what extent does this create market differentiation and to what extent is it mission critical if I look at things in those two dimensions, I've got activities that are both mission critical and market differentiating. These are the thing. these are the reasons people choose me over all the alternatives. These are the stuff I get do better than anybody else. This is the stuff that deserves my organizational and individual creativity and innovation. These are the things I invent. Because it's why people choose me. This is the stuff I got to do better than anybody else. Very few things. I can't be better than everybody else at everything. So almost everything I do in the organization falls into the next category, which is mission critical, but will never create market differentiation. I call these the parity activities. We need to do these as well as the market leaders. In order to do that, I just need to adopt and embrace what the market leaders are doing. I don't need to invent a thing. The market leaders, it's differentiating for them. For me, it's parity. I just need to do it well. So I started preaching this and writing about it and talking about it because I look back at our big ERP implementation and we spent a lot of the organization's time and money treating parity activities as if they were differentiating. Let me give you an example. The legacy order management system we replaced, the sequence of data entry in order management in the homegrown order management system was first customer name, then telephone, Then address out of the box, the new erp system asked for name address telephone that's pretty standard name address telephone we were actually required to customize the erp to ask for telephone second now in the context of this purpose alignment model does asking for address second create market differentiation does the company have customers who say i'm going to do business with you because you asked for my telephone number second no they don't care they don't know it's irrelevant to them Yet we'd invested even a minimal customization. I just, we did massive changes we shouldn't have to make the new system look like the old system. But that's just a simple example where a simple question would be, why do we need to do this customization? Will it make any difference in the market? Mm. Will it make any difference in our organization's life? Will it make any difference in the our customers' lives? No, it won't. Then why are we doing it? Good enough is good enough. Address second is good enough. It's not how, it's not why people choose. So anyway, so and I also, based on my waterfall experience, started using Agile, even though I never heard the word Agile. I started saying, okay, every time I do a system project, I I, I think the binders of system requirements we built when mm-hmm. we did our ERP project were a complete waste of time because we delivered at the end of those 14 months, a system that exactly matched those system requirements. And people said, that's not what I asked for. And I said, yes, it is. It's right here on this page here on page 78. It said, you want this? The system does that. And I realized, my epiphany was, no one knows what they want until they see it. Mm. So instead of writing requirements, why don't I give them an early visual prototype so they can see it?
0: Nope. Change this, knows what do they want. that. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, change this, do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I do have to ask you a question because sure. we've got a lot. You, you fed me a lot here. I must know when people came to you and said, I never want to work to you again. Mm-hmm. What were some of those channels of feedback that you invented and created?
1: my most effective one. But culture, I think culture matters, meaning I'm very vocal about the culture I want to create. Here are the characteristics of the culture. Now, you won't know this until you try this. Some of you are going to have to go out on a limb. I'm telling you, if you think I'm not abiding by the culture myself, call me on it. Now, some brave soul is going to do it at one point, and then you're going to see how I react. And if I react and say, and there are repercussions, then you'll know I don't mean it. But if I react saying, yeah, you're right, I'll do better. What else do I need to change? Then you'll know I'm serious about it. So just articulating the expectations for myself as part of our culture. I've also, especially when I was early in my journey, when I'm like, this is not a skill I have. Now, I may be able to develop that skill and I think I've gotten better at it, but I would actually ask people on my team, to be my feedback loop. The way I describe it is, I have a one person on my team for years. I actually took her from job to job. Her name's Amy. I said, Amy, your job is this. In addition to whatever else you do, because she was amazing. Amy is amazing. One of the best people I've ever worked with in my life. And I said, Amy, your job is to tell me all the things everybody knows about me, but me. And you can tell me. And I will never, ever doubt you, question you or punish you for telling me all the things everybody knows about me but
0: me mm, it's powerful
1: and uh and amy was good at it
0: <laughs> i did um have you read first break all the rules no you, you i think you'd enjoy it a lot okay. so um i had a similar experience back in my first leader i think every first leader kind of goes through the uh tyrannical dictatorship um I, I well, unless they're like just really good. I mean, I think a lot of people go through that (laughs) pain and then they realize everyone thinks they can be the leader better until they're the leader, (laughs) you know? Um, So one exercise that I did, this came from first break all the rules, um, is to provide a feedback form to every member of your team. Mm. You give the feedback form to an Amy, basically. So Amy runs the meeting. You go have yep. a private meeting. You can't be anywhere within five square miles of wherever this meeting <laughs> place. You give everybody the form. It's like, you know, whatever. How is Phil when it comes to providing feedback? Do you right. feel comfortable? Blah, blah, blah. Whatever the open-ended yeah, yeah. questions are, if there's anything that you could provide, what would the feedback you would be to give to him? What do you, blah, all this stuff, right? They write it all down. They fill out this whole form. They haven't mean. then they just have an open discussion about you without you there. Yeah. Then your Amy takes all of that feedback, types it up anonymously, so you have no, cl- <laughs> right. So you have no it, clue, right? Yeah. And then delivers you this packet of death. <laughs> Which you read and quickly become very, very you become humbled very, very fast. Sure. But oh yeah, it becomes one of the your team all of a sudden you're like, Why are you guys so much brighter? Like why are you smiling? <laughs> right? you're like, why are you smiling? You know, like no. Uh um, you know, it's like it worked wonders. And um it it's definitely a very humbling experience, but you learn quickly how to. I, I guess I, that's just a very good. It, it reminded me of kind of that feedback loop, like you were saying. Have tell me everything you tell tell me everything you know about me that I don't know about myself. It's um it's powerful. Yeah, and I think it's.
1: Uh, I hate to stereotype, but I think we technical engineering types tend to be a little less sensitive to those cues, those social cues. Yes, You you wonder, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. Did we become engineers because we're immune or did becoming engineers make us immune to social cues? I'm not sure which is which, but I think it's just generally true. So I have to make a conscious. So I realized I had to make a conscious effort to see myself as others, or at least be open to the feedback of how how others saw me or perceived.
0: Mm. Yes. The, the, so and now <clears throat> moving on to the other, um, treasure trove of info that you have given me the agile versus waterfall and doing it without kind of seeing it. I think I was doing it without noticing it yeah. as well, because maybe it's because I'm kind of like ADD and trying to do a bunch of things at once all the time. Right. But we always said it as like, no, you must work things in parallel. You must work things in parallel with the other things versus, you know, step A to step B. How could waterfall ever work in that, yeah. you know, in like a, oh, well, yeah. It's, you know uh, and
1: it's just interesting it, it goes back to the talking about the physics and you know it, we we believed there was a methodology that we had to follow that was waterfall and I, you know I, I, when i talk about the differences uh, between traditional project management and agile methods i see i think part of that waterfall methodology was designed for engineering with hard physical constraints i'm going to build a bridge the bridge must have this span it must carry this load i have hard physical constraints so i can design i really don't have a lot of wiggle room in my design in my requirements so why not design those requirements up front and let it go because it's you know but but once we got into technology there are no physical constraints it, it, we, can whatever, world, uh, we can do whatever we can do whatever whatever someone yeah. imagines they want to do and so so we had this misfit <laughs> we had this misfit because we are treating these projects as if we can define everything properly up front mm-hmm. even though once we start doing the work people's minds start to expand, or they change their minds. And we didn't really have a method to deal with that other than punish people. What I mean by that is, okay, we've defined in waterfall, we've defined the requirements up front, now we're going to do the design and development. And then if somebody proposes any changes, I'm going to form a rigid change review board where people have to come and beg for us to adopt their asked for change. Mm-hmm. And usually if I really wanna punish them, I'm gonna, the chair of the change review board is the CEO, cause they're gonna be nervous asking the CEO to change the project plan. And so we would punish people for changes. And I just thought we're, we're, that those physical constraints are gone So let's let them go. And along with that, the methodology that forces people into, I'm going to know everything before I start. And once I've started, I cannot change anything. And and that makes
0: makes end users hate IT anyways, because the whole goal of real good IT leadership is to have end users not make shadow it decisions yeah, because exactly. you wouldn't listen to them <clears throat> yep, yep. Um, to create open communication between you and end users to get them to open up tickets and care and do things the right way and not and to not go around and say it is terrible around here that's right <laughs> yeah you know? rigid they're rigid they won't yes. will not listen
1: yeah they're unresponsive their customer service skills yeah it's it, it the, the whole my whole approach to IT leadership has changed significantly over the years.
0: What about the other way around? What about an IT leader in an organization where he has an IT leadership title, but he doesn't really have a seat at the executive roundtable, so to speak, and he doesn't really have an effect on the company culture and he hates really being the IT non-leader with the leadership (laughs) title? You know what I mean? What, what do you say to that guy? Like what, what can he do? You
1: know, I don't know. That's, a, that's a tough one. I fortunately, I've never been in that position, but I think that's where you focus on what can I do to exert influence in the organization? Now I've got some okay. things I do to exert influence on the organization right. first is, and that's, that's where it ties into this. Some of the things you started with when you gave the introduction to my approach to life. First thing, uh, i have to i and my team have to have incredible credibility so focus on operational excellence meaning we're going to get really good at delivery we're going to get good at agile we're going to get good at lean we're going to get good at ITIL best practices. We're going to get good at production change, service catalog management. We're going to get really good at this stuff because I don't know how many times I've talked to IT to organizational leaders, and they when I asked them to describe their IT, they could describe it as a black hole. Hmm. Projects go in and never come out. Okay, let's get really good at delivery. Let's get really good at delivery and let's surprised like to
0: know what project they're talking about
1: (laughs) every one of them yeah
0: (laughs) like i mean no but what's a good example can you think of a good what's what's the most common black hole i'm sure the erp or some sort of sap thing is going to be a black hole but i mean but i think even even we have a
1: hard time even with custom development projects because they and there's sort of a conflict because the organization wants us to define everything into including timelines and budgets up front even though we don't know what we're doing yet i tell people when's the worst time to Make a commitment on time and budget. It's at the beginning. Why? Because we know the least. Mm. So I, yeah, anyway, but but
0: it, I think it's just. <laughs> we'll tell you right when we're getting ready to release it. Yeah, I'll tell you. I, if
1: I'll, I'll tell you the day before, how's that? No, I'm just kidding. You you, you want to keep them informed. That's part of the customer management. But I think you've got. If it's hard as an organization, as an IT organization to be credible if we have a poor track record. So let's change the track record. I'll give you an example. Got hired to turn around this uh, the IT IT transformation at a large organization. It was so, uh, that IT was in such disrepute that they had, nine months before, started working on a complete redo of all the client-facing technology. And no one from IT was allowed to work on that project. That's how bad it was. Mm-hmm. For example, they had some of the worst system
0: downtime I'd ever experienced. Give me an example of worst system downtime. I got it now.
1: They did, they did two production releases a week, 90% of the time on either Tuesday or Thursday, it resulted in a in-system downtime that would last anywhere from minutes to hours. So I said, okay, this is easy. What's, what do you mean, Neil? This is easy. I said, if you look at the data, if you look at the evidence, I would say we don't, we're not very good at production change deployment. I got a crazy idea. Why don't we make sure that we don't release a change to production unless we've executed a valid test and it passed the test? Let's just start with that. So for about two weeks, we didn't do any production changes because no one had yet tested their production changes. So it took a while to do some testing. After that, after we got good at production change, we never had self-inflicted downtime. Suddenly, IT goes from the game that can't shoot straight to, hey, these guys actually do what they say. Mm -hmm. We focused on agile. I'd inherited this raft of projects, the new client experience projects that were all done uh, outside of IT. I'd inherited those, even though IT wasn't supposed to be involved. What's an example
0: of something that someone could actually be doing without IT? Involved. This is insane.
1: Uh, they had they had assigned people from the business from the non-IT side, and they had outsourced the development of a bunch of uh software so like an,
0: projects. Basically like to an MSP to do the rollout yeah. and everything and then yeah, hand it over. Exactly. Okay.
1: Yep, hand it over. Our job was to support it once it was created. But all the projects were they're all behind time, all behind schedule, all over budget. They hadn't seen anything, been going no for alignment, nine months, no, no alignment. output. Yeah. And so I inherited these. So the first thing I looked at was. Okay. I applied this purpose alignment. M- thought process. I said, okay, let's look at this portfolio of projects. One was customer profile. I said, why are we building a customer profile? It seems like those exist. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, it's unlikely that we create competitive advantage because we've got the world's greatest customer profile. What are some patterns? I'm just going to go look and see who's really good at customer profile. Ah, Wow. Here's some samples. Okay, let's build this. So we changed the rules. This thing was already, they'd been working on it for nine months. When I inherited the project the team said we need nine more months wow so i said okay let's uh change the approach let's base it on even if we don't buy a student profile Tool or a, a customer profile tool, why don't we just at least design it based on that pattern? And let's do it. We're going to, this is also going to be our, our entree into agile methods. Let's do it in a series of two week sprints. And we got it done in three sprints. Six weeks later, it's done. Mm. So the organization sees a project that was supposed to take a few months at nine months, say they need nine months more. So an 18 month project that suddenly now is done in six weeks. And they say, hey, these guys may kind of have it together. Mm. And so we built credibility. Ability, we built that capital, and then that changed the relationship. So suddenly I'm getting invited to the staff meetings. Of the, of the other functional parts of the organization. Hey, Neil, could you come? We're ta- we're having our, our kind of our planning for next year. Could you come and talk, be with us and kind of give us some insight onto where we could possibly <laughs> use technology to make life better? And so suddenly, and, and then it was, then it extended beyond me to people on my team. Then it's all of IT. And that's one where when I got there, you talked about shadow IT. There was more shadow IT than IT in this organization. Sure. And, and, the, and the CEO, when I joined, he said, hey, if you want me to manage, mandate that the shadow IT become I said no I never like a push I prefer a pull so we focused on operational excellence we focused on let's listen to our customers let's not dictate or mandate what they do let's be understanding and come back with solutions but not just a solution options for solutions i understand what you're asking for we've got a couple of ways we can do this which would you prefer we do so it becomes a collaboration rather than an order giver. And the other thing we focused on a lot of time and effort was culture. The CTO that I replaced was like Neil of old. He was a tyrannical micromanager. It was so bad. the, The marker for his Ty- tyrannical nature was, if he ever left his office, even to go to the men's room, he would lock his office. So I'd heard these stories about him. And so the first time I got the whole group together, I'd been there for about a week, just trying to catch up, get everything on board. and So I got the whole group, the I- IT, IT, IT team, not the shadow IT. And I said, I, I want you to understand, I want to focus a lot on culture. And this is the thing, give me feedback if I'm not living this. And I told him, I said, just so you know, I want to create a culture of trust and ownership, which means I can never be suspicious of you. For example, my office, I know we're short of meeting space. I've been here a week. I already I already know I'm not going to spend a lot of time in my office. Just check my schedule if you need a meeting room, use my office. It's a nice office. You got whiteboards and a nice table. If you need my office, use it. But just do me a favor. The lower right-hand drawer of my desk has got some personnel files in it. I'm not going to lock my door. I'm not going to lock my desk. Just don't ever dig into those personnel files. Would you do me that favor, please? And I left it at that. Now I have no idea if anybody ever rifled through those personnel files. I don't know. I don't care because I couldn't be suspicious. And to me, an indicator that I was very different from the previous CTO was I wasn't going to lock my desk.
0: That's a that's a you got to give trust to get trust exactly.
1: And so that's it anyway. So so looking at so operational excellence, getting really good at delivery, mm. living the lives of my customers, so they. Try trusted us. But but those, those two are interdependent. They wouldn't trust me until we were operationally excellent and good at delivery. And then changing the culture, the shadow IT melted away mm. because the the IT people, the side of IT saw an IT organization that did what it said it was going to do, did it well, and seemed to have a lot of fun while doing it. And so they would then opt in. They came to me and said, hey, we really like, we like what we're you, you're saying. It feels like our career path would be better with you than over in marketing. i say, You really need to talk to Pat, the CMO. I'm not going to pull you in unless Pat's okay with it. And so then they were asked, they were petitioning to become part of central it because I've always felt like shadow it is an indictment of me and my culture. And so I'm not going to mandate that (laughs)
0: way.
1: I'm going Uh, to, I'm going to solve the problem of me and my leadership and my culture.
0: It's yes. Yes. Perfect. Okay. So this is where we take a break and uh, (laughs) I ask you, um, what did you do? Um, in high school or your teenage years prior to the invention of the internet i can barely remember that that was so long ago i I mean i'm looking at your history you went to mit for a couple years let's see you graduated with a physics degree in 83 so i was yes, a whole I'm, seven years old i was yeah, entering yeah. first grade yeah you know, that I, in, Phil.
1: thank you should, thank you for reminding me of <laughs> no, my age. no no
0: it's okay if i asked my if we talked to my wife i was like it's my kids <laughs> like to ask mom was in diapers when you were in like, you know, like uh, yeah. but um <laughs> sorry fine what did you do for fun uh without the internet you know i mean it's just it's so interesting when i it's still it's mind Boggling to me that we have children that didn't grow up before the invention of you know the cell phone or microwave oven or something like this. You know, I mean, it's just it's so amazing how far we've come.
1: Yeah, if I wonder, really want to frighten my children, I say when I grew up there were four TV ch- stations: CBS, yeah. NBC, ABC, and PBS. And they're like, they get, ah, I can't believe you survived yeah. that, father. I have no respect for you.
0: We pulled um, a I, we pulled a knob out of the TV and waited that's for right. four and minutes. We had to and... walk up to change the channel. They're like, no. <laughs> Wow, I said we were healthier
1: people because we had to walk across the living room to change the channel. Um, I read a lot. I still read a lot. Um, I spent a lot more time in libraries than I do now. I read a lot. I read newspapers. I read magazines. I just it's it was a complete. I sometimes I remember what a nightmare it was. It would sometimes take you two weeks to schedule a meeting before Outlook. Mm. You know, a, an office meeting. I need twelve mm. people. I mean, I got to go find 12 people and ask them and then coordinate these schedules because I would have to schedule, coordinate a meeting just to get them together for two minutes to schedule the meeting. So, you know, you just is this round robin. Well, Thursday at two work. Well, I go to the oh, Thursday at two won't work, but Wednesday at one work. So then I got to go so- cycle through it again. Mm-hmm. Communication was a nightmare. Scheduling was a nightmare. It was a lot more work to get work done pre-technology.
0: That's pretty amazing. Yeah. When you think about that, uh, that's just scheduling alone. That's schedule insane. Was a nightmare. Yeah, things I mean, move we can much more column on the rotary dial we could, or I got really, I
1: really mastered the notion of a, once the the telephone technology got to the point where I could have telephone distribution lists so I could record a message and send it off to the 12 people. But then I still had to, to, on a piece of paper, write down the responses. Okay, Phil can make Thursday at 2, but Matt can't. Uh, Mary can do Wednesday at 2, but not, you know, it's just, it was just, it was hard, it was a lot of work to get worked on.
0: That's, um, yes, the, uh, a major reason probably for the trajectory you could probably map that out you you, you being yeah. the physicist and math guy could could we we could map those statistics yeah it's oh, just it's, that'd be it's, uh,
1: and i was i was having this conversation with somebody uh, this morning as I as I think about the future of IT, I mean, the future of technology in the organization. And I start to wonder longer term, this will be well after I'm I'm retired and gone, what is the role of an IT leader when technology has become so democratized that you don't need a dedicated IT organization, except for things like I don't know what you need them for in the future because we've democratized, uh, you know, low code, no code. Now with generative AI, what what other citizen type democratized business roles can I create? Where might
0: reverse yeah. back? Might revert back to like the IT guys, the data center guy plugging boards exactly. now. It might right. just be more like the electrician.
1: Yeah. Um, and maybe we maybe we there are certain value streams that we manage in an IT organization but maybe some of the traditional roles we've had go away because what if i can what if i've got generative ai embedded into my erp or my crm and i can tell the generative ai go change this workflow Go change this transaction flow.
0: So so that brings up kind of a transition transition question, which is um, security. How um, how do you f- how do you feel about that um, in alignment with um, your purpose alignment <laughs> differentiation and just copying what everyone else does because uh, that's good because that ain't gonna work. And how does that match up with your culture? Because there's obviously security and culture is a big one, right? Sure. Because if your culture is bad, forget you might as well just forget. Scared? Yeah. You know, throw that away. You know, That's a good Uh, question. And
1: and security's always been one of those gray areas. But again, the question I ask is it kind of goes back to the lean manufacturing definition of value value versus waste. And then there's value added waste, meaning, but the value definition in lean manufacturing is if a customer knew you were doing this, would they gladly pay for it? hmm. But that doesn't, if it's valuable, it doesn't necessarily mean I need to do it in an innovative way. Do I need to invent zero trust network architectures or do I partner with someone? somebody who is the invention innovative leader at Zero Trust Network Architectures and just deploy what they're inventing. Do my customers expect me to be better at security than the inventor or the innovator of zero trust network. Does that make
0: sense? That is a That's- great question. And and that needs to be, uh, highlighted. So, so Greg, my producer, this is your, this is your mark right now as you're when you listen to this and, and transcribe and do all kinds <laughs> of stuff, this is crazy important. <laughs> okay. So, uh, and the reason why is because it comes back to all those people that are going to be stuck in the arrogant dictatorship role or engineering minded thing. And they may actually think, yes, I do have yes. to invent it. No. no, you don't. No, you it's don't. Okay. You might it, it's okay. It. You might hate that sales rep from Dark Trace calling you every day, but he's got a good so, product. He's
1: got a good product. So, yeah. So, so the way I think of it is I've got my parody activities. Remember they're mission critical. They are not unimportant. These are not things I can do poorly Mm -hmm. at the same time. I don't need to do them better than they have to be done. So there's this sweet spot. Mm -hmm. Well, Parity is also not static. It changes all the time. Look at security, how it changes all the time. So it's dynamic. So the best choice I've got two things I need to do when it comes to security. One is I'm going to treat it as a parity activity. I don't need to invent it because other people that is their differentiator. I'm going to partner with, meaning I'm going to use the products and the innovation that comes out from the market leaders. So I'm going to inherit their inventions just by doing being their customer. But secondly, because in especially in security, and i think that same is going to be true in in uh, generative ai the landscape changes so dramatic. so idc i'm adjunct faculty at idc they were tracking three years ago like 14 15 1800 security vendors today it's over 4000 mm-hmm. so the landscape changes so quickly the other thing i've got to think about is how do i loosely couple my decisions to keep my switching costs low so i'm going to do business with whoever the market leader is today but i'm going to hedge and say Two years from now, they may not be the market leader. How difficult would it be for me to switch? So I want to loosely couple whatever I can in order to deal with uncertainty and rapid change.
0: Life cycle management is what I call it. I mean i've been and, and to...
1: i have i have intentionally shortened my contract periods in areas where i'm dealing with providers where we're in um very rapidly changing uncertain technologies where the technology is evolving quickly or in the case security threats are evolving quickly i know they want a three-year contract how much more would i pay and is it worth it to get that down to a two-year contract
0: hmm. I mean, if it's application based too and if we're yeah. talking software and applications then it should be completely reasonable yeah. um the i've still pained, pained, pained by the people that I see stuck on five-year agreements with some MPLS, (laughs) some some crazy MPLS network, you know, that
1: requires a buyout clause if they change. We're we're
0: stuck at three meg throughput or five meg (laughs) throughput for the next two years, Phil, and then we can have a, a gig. (laughs) Because, <laughs> because the
1: other lesson I've learned through all of this is technology changes so quickly. I want everything I do has I, one of my re- architectural design goals is loose coupling and low switching
0: costs. Hmm. Loose coupling. Explain that uh, as touched. opposed
1: to tight coupling. So, uh-huh. if I've got so uh, loose coupling, for example, um, I'm going to deploy a new endpoint man uh, endpoint detection and response system. Right. It's going to, I'm going to have data feeds from that into, for example, my seam. Mm -hmm. But other than that, I'm not going to make any hard or direct connections to anything with that, because if so, I just made some tight coupling where I don't need any Mm. because I want to make it easy to replace. I can pull it out Mm. and replace it in a day. Um, And so that that loose coupling. And so even if you look inside, one of the big transformations I did was replatforming all the client-facing technology for a company, large monolithic applications, large monolithic systems. And we broke them. Into uh, people call it a microservices architecture. Well, mm-hmm. some of our services were macro. Like I've got a I've got an ERP system that is a by itself service. Mm-hmm. But how do I communicate? How does the rest of my platform communicate with that service? Only through an API. Or an event handling layer. I right. don't want to do any direct connections between those systems because that creates tight coupling, which I might need to unwind should I ever need to tear those things apart. So it's yes. just it's just that for me, it's an it, there's the architectural principles are endurability. I want things to last, but at the same time, replaceability. I want to be able to replace things quickly if I need to.
0: I'm thinking. Uh, I just. Oh gosh, what were my brain just went dead, but I was just right. thinking of old. You're a little IBM. young for that. I have IBM, it to me
1: like every two minutes.
0: I- <laughs> IBM, like mainframe servers that, you know, might be, you know, people are stuck on them, AS400s, yes. yes. uh, things like that, where, you know, like we're trying yeah. to replicate to the cloud. Well, I know yeah. one vendor in upstate <laughs> New York. Yeah. That's <laughs> well, a true story. It is. It's a true story, yeah. and they're very good at doing it. And uh, yeah. well, that's what we're going to do. Like um, at a call, a couple I mean, of testimony to this. IBM, you know. But I mean, like, hey, testimony yeah. to IBM, you know, you made something that you know lasted and worked and is solid and great. And and that was okay when things didn't change quickly. But now
1: that they change quickly, those your approach has to has to be change ready because whoever the market leader is today may not be in the future. So how do I make things more interchangeable and replaceable? Oh, I mean. Miss- the bez well, it's servers. different today than it was 30 years ago or 20 years or if things are much more dynamic than they were five years ago
0: it, absolutely i was just saying i i missed the bez bez servers yeah but, you know i mean you know, that was they great. were rock
1: solid yeah it was, it was, rock solid. Uh,
0: hillary liked it uh <laughs> someone will get that someone will get that
1: one yeah some old timer like us yes
0: <laughs> so,
1: bez what's uh, a bez how do you even spell bez you know
0: What's a punch card? <laughs> what's a punch card?
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that don't that will send me to post-traumatic stress.
0: <laughs> I tell people uh, when they
1: say, Okay, Neil, what's your program? So, so I've been the CTO, CIL. Okay, mm-hmm. Neil. So I've got these large software teams and they're they're trying to, you know, kind of humiliate me. Okay, Neil, tell me what what where's your where's your programming expertise? I say <laughs> amazing fortran and they start to laugh i say, no 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 don't laugh remember <laughs> it's on fortran we sent a man to the moon and back you'll notice that since we stopped using fortran we haven't been there and back so just keep that in mind oh yeah
0: you what just your opened Javas up a can and
1: your grails and your rubies and your reacts just remember would it get a man to the moon and back no but fortran did
0: did it i, I
1: don't know but it sounds good
0: <laughs> did it
1: I oh yeah this ties back to the conspiracies that. that's right this ties back to i love
0: talking about it i would be honest with you i have been reading in-depth what happened you know what killed it for me was i saw a picture of president nixon making a phone call to the moon phone call to the moon i've been in telecom for a long time i've just
1: you know that's a long copper line
0: and i thought you know i just made me think like yeah how the hell did they do that you know like no for real like just one simple aspect of you know a massive probably the largest event that's happened in the 20th century or whatever it is. Right. So I started doing a little research. AT&T switched it to Houston. Yeah. So reach out and reach out and touch someone, (laughs) you know, AT&T. They switched to Houston and then somehow Houston beamed it to the little umbrella on the on the 200 rover. 240,000 yeah. miles away on the rover. And I just I think I'm like, how? I mean, what was the latency, the round trip? There was there any? No, it wasn't, because they probably used whatever radio wave yep. frequency. And uh it's pretty insane. And that's just At one of There should
1: have been a bit of a delay.
0: Not to I think it was 2.5 seconds. Um, not to mention the um re-entry into the earth's atmosphere at 36,000 miles per hour and whatever, you know, thousands of degrees and slowing that down at that speed. There's a lot to the moon landing. That's, um, (laughs) there's a lot that I've been reading and how do we erase all the files and everything? You know, I mean, I'm not saying there isn't a lot of science behind it. I'm not saying there isn't a lot of real research and hundreds of thousands of people that were paid, but did it actually, did we actually do it is what I want to know. Or was it, you know, anyways, um, that is an insane. Why haven't we gone back to the moon for real? Seems Which like our play?
1: technology's better today.
0: You'd think. You'd think. I mean, I remember as a kid thinking how amazing would it be to have like a mini TV, and we not have not true. We have iPhones now and stuff, you know, it's and crazy.
1: Uh, it's absolutely um, crazy.
0: Yeah, we used to plug in the phone with the four prong little prongs into the wall and have a cord that was all wrapped up and tangled to like you know walk around the corner.
1: And if I look at, think about what's happened over the last 20, 15, 10, five years, what does the next five, 10, 15, 20 years look like?
0: You know, it'll be data science friends that are like, you know, thinking it's like the end of the world. I have others that are like, no, this is the greatest time ever in the history of the world. You know, know, no, we're all going to die. Um, Well, this has been, uh, this has been outstanding and, and very, very, um, um, well, you can see
1: how seriously i take myself. So,
0: well, I, you know, I said, I think it's very important not to take yourself seriously. I had a I whole a whole run-in the other day with like someone that took my LinkedIn invite like way too seriously, which was, you know, obviously I'm not a genius. I said, you know, I knew you were looking for a bearded genius, so here I am. And you know, so I was like, <laughs> How dare you? That's so sexist. I was like, what? And it was uh, you know, it was completely out of You know, I was like, and I was like, look, the the world is take everybody else, uh, make everybody else the most important person in the world. Every time you're talking with someone, imagine that you know they're the most important, they're the most important person in the world, and you're just don't take yourself seriously seriously um and you'll just have a lot of fun and uh, i agree evening. i've had a great i've had a
1: wonderful the best thing in, in my life well no i got married that was a good thing the birth of my seed three sons and raising <laughs> that was a good thing but besides that <laughs> that that five minute conversation that got me into an it career the best thing to have in my life i've enjoyed i've enjoyed every minute yeah but i've enjoyed the entire journey
0: 30. Nice. I mean, just think about it. You could have been an engineer. I, I could mean, have been an
1: engineer. I could have been a plant manager somewhere. How boring would that be?
0: You never know. If it was in a data center, it might be cool. The data center guys really seem to love their job. Something about racking and stacking and compute power. And um,
1: I call it, I call it the guys who love the blinking lights. I'm just uh-huh. I've never been a blinking lights guy. So
0: super good. Uh, any final words of wisdom? So it's, it's, it's Um, I usually ask like one of two questions, what's your end game and should there be an end game? And, or, I mean, just think about the people that are getting into technology nowadays, they don't have the benefit of um, punch cards, you know? So it's kind of like, what do you do?
1: I, I my advice is particularly for uh, the thing I love that this point in my career that I enjoy is I call it CIO whispering, mm. helping other IT leaders be successful, Learning from the experience, because I tell people most of my ex, most of my good stuff came as a result of my recovering from a train wreck. You know, maybe <laughs> yes, that's the best like way it. to learn is to is. You know, cause a train wreck, then have to recover from it.
0: Fail forward uh, mistakes. I was like, guys, uh, I am just a I conglomerate of mistakes.
1: The, at the level at which technology is now completely intertwined with organizational activities, requires an IT leader who is forward looking focuses on culture because you got to unleash talent and that that really i uh, the model i what i tell other leaders is your job is to build an entire team of i.t leaders even people on the service desk need to understand influential leadership because then when they're working on one one one-on-one with somebody who's struggling with technology this is an opportunity to change how they interact with technology that Mm -hmm. requires influence and influence is the core tenet of leadership
0: besides what happens if phil dies tell me that all the time seriously what happens if i die i can't just come to a grinding halt you know everything it, it just,
1: my, my my arrogance says wouldn't it be wonderful everyone like me no i don't want that <laughs> but i do want people that can get stuff done and do the right things i tell people we got to focus on two things do the right things and do them the right way and then i guess the third thing is treat people well because there's never a downside to treating people well there's a lot of downside to treating people poorly i've never had a bad experience when i treated somebody well okay so, so profound and simple
0: so simple what about bob i'm a simple man it's so sim- Simple. Do things well, right and do them do them the right way. Treat people well. Wow. Go figure. Amazing. Uh thank yeah. you, sir, so much for being on dissecting population. It's been
1: nice to meet with you and talk with
0: you. Uh, it's been outstanding.